0: Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer. Well, it's been quite a calendar year for the world in general and a big one for Israel and the Jewish world in particular. It's an honor to be able to tell you that joining me here in the studio to discuss the headlines, the highlights, and the lowlights of 2021 is Haaretz Editor-in-Chief Aluf Ben. Hi, Aluf. Thanks for helping me sort out this crazy year.
1: Hi, and uh, happy new year.
0: And on the line is Amos Harel, the crack Haaretz defense analyst, who, as readers of Haaretz and listeners of the podcast know, has been wearing two hats for the past couple of years, covering the war against COVID as well as his standard military and strategic beat. I guess we can say that you write about everything that has to do with us staying alive, almost.
2: More or less so, yes. Hello, Alison.
0: <laughs> Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you.
0: So if Israel in 2021 was some kind of television series, it would have two major plots playing out, right? Politics with the season climax being Benjamin Netanyahu leaving the prime minister's office after 12 years in office and the COVID pandemic. Aluf, do you see these events as inextricably intertwined? How did politics and COVID play out and uh, interact with each other over the past year?
1: You know, you can give any, any number of reasons for Netanyahu's departure. And, but the key factor was 300,000 Likud voters who stayed at home. And prevented Netanyahu in the last election from reaching the majority that he wanted, that maybe would have saved him from the trial, mm-hmm. and even at least keep him in power for a longer period. And uh, I suspect that at least some of these people stayed at home rather than come to vote for Netanyahu because they were frustrated by the way he handled the COVID crisis, which you know, looking back. He opted always for the the toughest measures, long closures, uh, kids staying at home, watching their school gates closed, uh, printing money to pay for people to stay at home for the extended leaves of absence. And then uh, Netanyahu built on bringing in the vaccines to Israel as a political uh, lifesaver, but that didn't work either. While Bennett campaigned and even wrote a book, How to Defeat, a book that is now, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't like to, to recall his, his advice in that book, How to, how to Defeat the COVID and uh, the pandemic. And uh, Bennett, Bennett pledged, and so far kept his pledge, to be able to live with COVID and keep the country open and keep the schools open, keep the stores open, and so on. And so far, he's been true to his word. And we'll see what this. happens, as they say. But, you know, there were there were many, many other by developments of that. I think the most important one is the, the Islamic party, led by Mansour Abbas, joining the Bennett coalition. Uh, we have an Arab politician stating his support for Israel as a Jewish state, or at least accepting Israel as a Jewish state, that would stay that way. This is not the mainstream uh, Arab political line in Israel for many, many years. And Mansour Abbas uh, faces, faces a big debate in the Arab community, in the Arab society in Israel, about joining the coalition. Mm-hmm. But so far, he's been able to, to be the, the linchpin of that coalition.
0: Let's rewind for a minute. Let's try to go through yeah. the year quickly, chronologically. I mean, we started the year with, you know, for me, an American-Israeli uh, dual citizen. The big event that kicked off the year was Joe Biden being uh, sworn into office and Donald Trump losing the election. At least we know that he lost the election. We don't know that he knows that uh, that he lost the election. And it was obvious then that the things between the White House and uh, and Israel were going to be very different starting from uh, Biden taking a month to call Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, yeah, and
1: not that, meeting him,
0: and not meeting him at all, and not meeting him at all. So, uh, you know, at that time, Netanyahu himself was gearing up, uh, was gearing up for the elections, and almost. Why do you think being the vaccine hero did not save uh, Netanyahu from defeat?
2: I think Netanyahu, like most uh, current leaders, uh, faced a challenge that he wasn't prepared for. And I think in a way, the pandemic acted as a sort of a huge x-ray for the performance of different uh, governments and different politicians around the world. And I'm not sure that we can say that any politician has been too successful at dealing with uh, COVID. And uh, we've seen ups and downs. There were times where uh, people in Israel said, well, just look at Austria doing so much better than we do. Or uh, just look at Sweden or just look at the U.S. It depends, of course, what you're a general attitude towards the pandemic is. Uh, But by the end of this, um, my sentiment is is quite similar to what Aluf has expressed. I I think that Israelis were fed up. Uh, This was much too hectic.
0: Fed up with repeat elections as much as they were fed up with the pandemic.
2: With everything. With the Netanyahu show, if you'd like. Mm -hmm. Everything, including the family, the wife, the sons, the expenses, the the, um, sense of everyday drama above everything else. And I think that from his point of view, it was quite tragic. He seemed to be the first leader in the world to be able to deliver the vaccines. By the time the elections were held in early March, if I'm not mistaken, most adult Israelis were vaccinated. The number of cases in Israel was going down. Israel was presented as a a success story. As we know, there were two waves after that. And it turns out that this is much more complicated and, and that vaccines alone could not solve the problem. But for him, it was quite amazing because his whole campaign for the fourth time uh, towards the fourth elections uh, was that, um, you know, he, he saved us, that this was he saved the Jewish people from another Holocaust. And therefore, he he needs to be, um, you know, he needs to uh, to receive a prize for that by winning the elections and becoming a, a leader of a stable government again. And um, eventually this is not the way
1: things um, have developed. Yeah, but there were other political dimensions to that as well. And first and foremost was his alliance that, that still holds together with the ultra-Orthodox parties. And it appeared as if Netanyahu bends the rules and regulations and uh, enforcement of COVID regulations in order to please the ultra-Orthodox and to give them advantage and to be able to live as much like their usual their pre-COVID way of life compared to the seculars. And I think that delivered eventually a huge political blow to Netanyahu, but now he saw it as his you know, self-interest in, in preserving his government. And the other thing was that, and we see the difference, You know, the, I think the main difference between the present and previous governments is that the Netanyahu government was a Netanyahu show with some... Political payments to the ultra Orthodox partners, but the entirely coup leadership was a bunch of dwarfs that all they did, and they're still doing opposition, was to praise Netanyahu and, and attack his uh, opposition and so on. This government is a loose coalition of fiefdoms. Bennett has no real political base behind him. He leads over a small party that some of its me- members of Knesset don't even support him anymore and uh, clearly is not he, he used a, a rare chance of being able to play both political blocks uh, against each other and eventually coming up as the leader of one of them. But his ministers, who are leading their own parties, have enormous power compared to their predecessors in the Netanyahu government. It was very difficult to break to twist the arm of the Minister of Education who opposed vaccinating the children at schools. The Minister of Defense can do whatever he wants in the territories without asking Bennett. Uh, The same is true about most other ministers. The Minister of Finance, Lieberman, one of the strongmen in this coalition, doesn't need Bennett's backing to come up with his budget ideas and so on and so forth. And it's very, very different than the Netanyahu government was One man, or as you said, the one family show, two years without approved uh, government budget. And and this government tried to make things back together as usual.
0: So I'll ask the both of you, which seems more effective? One strong hand, Netanyahu's, you know, steering the ship or this hyper-democratic collection of fiefdoms, each pulling its own way? I mean, is there is, is one or the other a better way to manage a pandemic or to uh, to run the country?
2: At least regarding COVID, I think that uh, there's one main advantage for Bennett over Netanyahu, and uh, Aluf has already mentioned that in a way, and that's that most people do not question his motives. It, with Netanyahu, it was not only the fact that he was always an alarmist, always uh, taking the 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 pessimist, the pessimist uh, view of everything warning about the end of humanity and 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 so on it was also this ever existing cloud of suspicion about his real motives because uh, as we know he's used that a lot during the pandemic many times he used a covid as an excuse to try to delay his trial uh, for all kinds of uh, different political maneuverings where the the end goal was always uh, to end his trial and, and, and to stop all uh, legal uh, process against him and with Bennett it's not the same thing you can doubt his motives you can suspect that he's not strong enough that he he, he may be surrendering to to other parties and so on but it's not about him it's not about his own uh, personal interest or gain And that's a that's a major difference I, I'm not sure it would help him come the fifth wave, but it's, it's quite an advantage when you compare that to the way uh, Netanyahu handled things.
0: Aluf, do you have an opinion on that? Which is a better way to, uh, to manage a crisis?
1: To, to some extent it is, but Bennett lacks the charisma of Netanyahu. And uh, when you see his press conferences on the pandemic, he was always appealing to the public to do this or not do that. And I think he, he scored a major failure when he begged the people not to travel abroad, and then his wife took their kids and traveled to a private vacation and the, Although some people said, "You see this is not Sarah Netanyahu; she's living her own life, she's not involved in uh, she's not appointing the head of Mossad or the chief of staff, she's not involved in in running the country but it's it's a very bad message that you know if you fail to convince your wife and kids, how can you convince millions of strangers?" not to travel, uh, to wear masks, uh, or to stay at home and not come to the office. And and Bennett lacks this authority that Netanyahu, at least at the beginning, the first days of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. people watched his press conference because they wanted some father figure to tell them what What to to do do and what not to do. And Bennett lacks this kind of authority.
0: When we're looking back at the year, I think one of the crazy moments in the year, I'll never forget the split screen, right, on April 5th, when we had on one half of the screen President Rivlin meeting with the leaders of the political parties, uh, charging Netanyahu with forming the government, and at the same time the corruption trial uh, beginning, right? Yeah. You think this all helped uh, lead to our government of change? That that absurdity.
1: Look, the Netanyahu block of supporters—they couldn't care less about the trial. The, mm-hmm. the more the more zealous pro-Netanyahu people see it as a kind of conspiracy by the deep state and the opposition to topple Netanyahu. And uh, nothing would change their mind on that.
0: In real time, though, we believed that Netanyahu would certainly pull it off. We, th- we thought he would pull it together. It was hard to imagine back then that uh, we would end up with the government that we have today.
1: It was hard to imagine Netanyahu leaving office. But he but did. But you know, he didn't win the election four times. At the end of the day, when there was someone who was willing to side, with an Arab party, and that was Bennett, rather than go on with the right wing bloc, then, then Netanyahu collapsed. And there was also the defection of Gidon Saar, mm-hmm. that again is not leading, the current Minister of Justice, is not leading a big party. But that was the, the a split in Likud, and the block of voters, the more affluent, more Ashkenazi voters of Likud, if you want, defected with Gidon Saar and some of them even moved on to Bennett's party. And Likud cannot win and cannot form a government without that block of minority support within the right wing. But Gideon Saar's defection showed that you cannot build a right-wing coalition and a stable government without their support. And Saar made it clear from the moment he announced his candidacy when he left Likud that if anybody wanted to see Netanyahu in power, they shouldn't vote for Saar's party. And he was, I think, the only politician who was true to his word on that, which Bennett wasn't. And clearly the, the right-wingers blame Bennett for ditching the right-wing base and siding with Lapid, with Mansour Abbas against certain election promises. But, you know, he's not the first person to break uh, his word in politics. And Netanyahu <laughs> Netanyahu did the same many times. And, and Bennett enjoyed Bennett and Saar, true blue right-wingers who now enjoy kind of support and recognition among the left. And you see the leaders of the left-wing parties, Labor and Merits, with no real differences. Yeah, uh, they are all uh, up there on, on the on, Golan
0: Heights the other day, having a good time. Yeah. Exactly.
1: There, there's no real policy difference between them and Bennett. And even Mansour Abbas, who's not part of the cabinet, but is part of the coalition, doesn't give his right-wing Jewish partners any hard time on whatever they do in the settlements or in the Golan or or vis a Gaza, or in any of these fronts.
0: So speaking of Mansour Abbas, Amos, take us back to those 11 days in May, May 10th to May 21st. I look back at what played out over that time, and then at the same time, I think at the very same time, we had the movement towards a coalition that included an Arab party in the Israeli government coalition for the first time in such a such a time of conflict and chaos. Can you just recap what you remember as uh, as how what happened in May played out and uh, and what the uh, the implications were long term?
2: Politically, it went back and forth. You remember Bennett, I think immediately after the fighting started in um, Gaza, Bennett almost immediately uh, announced that he was not going into a coalition uh, with the left and with um, uh, Mansour Abbas's uh, party. Uh, later, he thought better of this, and it was quite interesting to see that even after the riots in Arab towns and in mixed um, Jewish and Arab towns all over the country, I'm not sure if it was because or in spite of those riots, but in the end, it actually pushed Bennett forward, and he made this decision to to join the coalition and become the the prime minister. Uh, but I think that the the operation itself, I'm not sure many Israelis remember it.
0: It feels like it happens in a, in a parallel universe. Yeah, it it, it it feels sort of cut off from the rest of not, the year. Not right?
1: entirely. Not entirely. You, when we talk about the the, it, it the depends, confrontation, it depends of course where you live.
2: Uh, I, I think
1: all of the people were affected, of course. If you talk about the conflict between Israel and Gaza and Hamas, you're probably right. That was shorter than the previous one, with uh, with a much smaller number of casualties uh, on our side. But, but the wounds of the, of the conflicts in Jaffa, in Lida, uh, are, are still open, in Jerusalem, are still open. And uh, there are two very conflicting, disagreeing narratives on what happened. One narrative was that Arab citizens revolted and attacked their Jewish neighbors in kind of pogroms that brought back memories of, uh, you know, the Holocaust and pre-Holocaust Jewish lives in, in Europe or, or in the Arab world. And there's the, the other narrative, which was that Jewish settlers were trying to push the Arab citizens and, and their Arab neighbors away from the joint life they had in, 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 in Jaffa or in Lida, with the help of the Israeli police and armed West Bank settlers who came to help them, pogromed the Arab citizens. And uh, that everything that the police was saying was, was false and fake. And, uh, and it's still going on with uh, stories from your beat that the military is planning how to move in, in the future uh, uh, on the roads without using Arab truck drivers or uh, without going near Arab villages and towns. These are still open wounds. There is no agreed narrative on that. And uh, the entire thing is, is washed aside. But clearly, it's a new front, unprecedented, in Israel since 1948, where you have Jewish and Arab citizens fighting each other, regardless of, of, uh, of the narrative. Mm. This, this happened. This was very violent. People were lynched. People were killed. These wounds are still open because these people are still living side by side. And this is the, the, the lasting memory of, of, of this, this uh, period in May that might come back to haunt us. And what Bennett did with partnership with, with Mansour Abbas, to some extent mitigated the conflict because for the first time, the Jewish audiences saw an Arab politician on TV as as a welcomed guest and not as some sort of, of an enemy from within as they were taught for 73 years. But it's not over yet, unfortunately.
2: Amos? I think the scars from the domestic riots are much more dramatic and would remain much longer than anything that happened along the Gaza border. And as Aluf has mentioned, there will be doubts about what would happen with the Arab population in case of another escalation along the border. And these doubts have to do as well with Abbas's view. We have to remember that Bennett's coalition hasn't been faced with any kind of a major challenge regarding a security uh, crisis uh, since it was established uh, six months ago but on the other hand this is not the first case it's the most dramatic case Uh, but we have to remember that in 2000 immediately after the second intifada began there was a week of riots
1: all over arab towns and um, this was discussed for many many years after that you're right there was an uprising in arab towns and villages especially in the triangle Mm -hmm but not in the same way that people attack their neighbors from either side. And there was never that kind of Jewish violence against their Arab neighbors in Jaffa, in Lida. That didn't happen before.
2: And it's quite clear that this is another front, that whenever the government or the army have to think of a possible scenario of war with the Palestinians, they need to consider um, much more the events that may evolve Inside Israeli borders, that's quite clear. That this would not remain the same right. as it was uh, for for decades.
0: It seems to me that a lot of it is just about the new interconnectivity of our world, right? Everybody's watching everything play out on the internet, and there's no such thing as external conflict, internal conflict. They're all yes, and also, in dialogue.
1: The, and also the most important thing here was not Gaza per se, but Al-Aqsa, mm-hmm. but what whatever happened Jerusalem, in, in Jerusalem. That was that was the that was the spark. Yeah rather than than Gaza that was, and still is, more contained. But look, as I said, on one hand, there are scars. On the other hand, you see much more inclusion of the Arab society within the Israeli mainstream like never before in 73 years after that event, and and through that new coalition, and more visibility of uh, the Arab society in the mainstream media, more awareness in the Jewish society, that the crime wave in the Arab society is, is, is a national issue. It's a strategic mm-hmm. issue. It's a, a social issue that, that relates to everybody, not just to people who live in Num al or, or or in, in Lido or, or in uh, some village in the north. And I think this, this recognition is very new.
0: Yeah, I think that was a, a big point of movement in Israeli society this year. Is the- and,
1: and, and one can argue that the unintended consequence of the nation-state law of three and a half years ago was that at least some of the leadership of the Arab society chose to pick sides with the Zionist parties and say, okay, we cannot break the system, but we can try to make it work for us for as much as possible by fixing uh, uh, imperfections in the planning and zoning laws, but getting more budget allocations to Arab towns and villages, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Okay. Well, it's hard to get through the year, but we'll keep keep racing through it. We'll leave the, the spring behind and go into the summer and almost back to your other beat. It was supposed to be a great summer, you know, with the vaccines. We were all supposed to run around and have fun. And then it became the summer of the Delta variant. It seems, you know, now that we're dealing with the Omicron, that uh, Bennett, uh, you know, scored a lot of points in his handling of Delta, and in particular, in his foresight of launching this massive uh, booster campaign long before the rest of the world uh, caught up some of it. Most of it hasn't caught up yet in terms of giving their citizens boosters.
2: Yeah, Bennett um, sort of beat the Delta blues, if you'd like. (laughs) Uh, That was the first challenge he faced having to do with COVID. And he behaved in a very different manner than what he preached uh, when wrote this uh, booklet that Aluf has mentioned uh, before. In, in my view, he tried everything. He threw everything he had against the wall. And in the end, the booster stuck. It was a gamble, of course, because uh, other countries were not uh, risking um, a, a booster, a, a third uh, va- vaccine the, the way Israel did. But it was quite successful. He managed to keep the economy open. Many Israelis even traveled abroad during the summer. Uh, the war of course casualties. If I'm not mistaken, about 1,400 Israelis died from uh, the virus during the the summer wave of uh, Delta. Uh, but he handled this pretty well. Apparently, Omicron is another story altogether. Um, um, it's a it's a bigger challenge right now. But even now, I think when you listen closely to what Bennett is saying, every now and then he seems to be a little bit in panic, maybe reacting too quickly. And sometimes he's not on the same page as his ministers. But there are more and more hopes that there will be a difference between the, the actual number of cases and the fact that many of them are mild and perhaps less people will die Uh, of the virus this time on the fifth wave, it's not clear yet. As usual, we have to say, wait another week or wait another two weeks. Uh, But uh, talking to Bennett quite often, it doesn't seem to be uh, the end of the world from his view uh, as well. He still feels that uh, he has a set of uh, possible answers and that perhaps, yes, we will be flooded with cases within a few uh, days. It will be worse, at least if you judge the sheer numbers when you compare that to Delta, but not necessarily will we see um, the hospitals being flooded. Uh, the news from South Africa seems um, quite optimistic. We'll have to see about what happens in, uh, in the UK, in Denmark, and in other countries. But I, I think, again, the Israeli system, the hospital system, the doctors, the nurses, and so on, has gained quite a lot of experience. I'm not sure that this is a total collapse. I, I, I think in the end, there's still a, a, you know, a, a certain ray of hope uh, that this would, in the end, um, evolve in a better way than it appears to be right now. That, of course, there will be hundreds of thousands of cases, but it's perhaps not so many severe cases. And once this is over, once uh, spring comes along, maybe we'll find ourselves in a better uh, situation while dealing with uh, COVID. The other part of the story is how governments react. And here, a few weeks ago, I had this thought that maybe, you know, maybe this will turn out in the end to be the real problem. The governments will have a hard time giving up all the, the new sense of power that they achieved, even in democracies. Well, since the pandemic started, the fact that they have so much power
1: over their uh, citizens, I'm not sure that this would end so quickly. Well, clearly, Bennett put COVID and fighting the pandemic as his top issue. He devotes, you know, I don't know what he does uh, all the time, but his public time is mostly devoted to COVID. That's where he shows his personal involvement. Mm -hmm. You know, he tried foreign policy, toying with foreign policy, met uh, several world leaders, mostly to show that he could be, as we say from a provincial point of view, that he could speak English just as well as Netanyahu to foreign leaders, that he won uh, uh, meetings with Arab leaders who were either shy to meet Netanyahu publicly or meet him at all, the leaders of Jordan, Egypt, then an official visit to the United Arab Emirates with Lapid the foreign minister visiting Morocco which again all of this was denied to Netanyahu in, in recent years but you can't you can't say that there is a Bennett doctrine in foreign policy you know debating the US over Iran is basically a continuity of the Netanyahu policy uh, settlement expansion to the extent you could do it without uh, pissing off the Americans too much is an extension of Netanyahu's policy there's no talk about annexation in the West Bank, and he or doesn't any have other.
0: much wiggle room with this coalition anyway no, to exactly. make any moves in those areas. So the
1: only so the only area where the public looks up to Bennett and when Bennett identifies making a breaking point as a politician and as a national leader is the COVID, right. and this is where you see him involved in minutiae detail and and uh, trying to lead the pack, uh, not always successfully, but. Uh, That's where he's trying to make his mark, not yet on foreign policy or security policy. Mm.
0: Well, your mention of uh, geopolitics uh, uh, transitions us nicely into the one big issue that we haven't discussed yet on the podcast in terms of where we stood at January 1st, 2021, and where we're heading towards uh, as the year wraps up, and that is the Iran issue. I sit here with two uh, veteran military strategists, so I'm sure you're both going to want to uh, uh, weigh in on this in terms of what's happened since Biden's been in office in terms of the American position and uh What's going on with Iran deal? Yes, no. Are we going back? Are we better off or worse off than we were a year ago in terms of our uh, position uh, in Iran and how fast they're, uh, they're moving towards a dangerous point in their nuclear development?
2: Well, I, I think in order to discuss that, we need to mention what happened three years ago, in May uh, 2018, and uh, Trump's decision to pull out of the agreement, the JCPOA, under uh, extreme pressure from Netanyahu by now it's quite clear that the whole concept of uh, maximum pressure um, more or less failed the the iranians uh, did not give in and uh, although the americans resumed sanctions within a year uh, the iranians uh, uh, resumed their interest in the nuclear project uh, and continued to to work on it and uh, since Biden is in office and since uh, Bennett is in office, there's a sort of uh, consensus, at least among those in power, that actually what Trump and Netanyahu did by pulling out of the agreement was counterproductive, that in the end, the Iranians are much closer to producing a nuclear bomb now and that the uh, the, the, the sanctions did not lead us anywhere. In In retrospect, it's quite clear that what Netanyahu was hoping for was for some kind of iranian mistake that they would somehow provoke trump under all of this pressure and in the end trump would be angry enough to 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 bomb the iranians uh, to to bomb nuclear sites uh, to oblivion or or, or whatever and this of course did not materialize and apparently since bennett is in office uh, he's also uh, blaming netanyahu for not preparing uh, the army for the worst case scenario he's saying Well, you convinced Trump to to pull out of the agreement, but you failed to uh, tell the army to prepare uh, for a a situation in which Israel needs to strike. Um, Netanyahu hasn't really given us any answers on that. Uh, Bennett's problem is, A, that he needs to correct that, and B, that the fact that he blames Netanyahu doesn't solve his own issues with Biden, and that he hasn't been too successful at convincing the Biden administration to take a tougher stance
1: against uh, or to take a phone call from him. (laughs) Oh yeah. He's having trouble getting his
0: calls returned now too. Huh? Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) I would say this Bennett continues Netanyahu's policy. First of all, in the violent confrontation that is still going on between Israel and Iran, mostly in Syria. And, and uh, Bennett even hinted at intensifying this bombing campaign uh, that is the Israeli bombing campaign in Syria against targets identified with Iran or with uh, Iranian proxies. That's one thing, and that's, and that's not going to wither away, and there's still some risk of escalation there, regardless of whatever is happening on the diplomatic front. And we must not forget it. Israel is, once again, as it did about a decade ago, is beating the drums of war we're going to bomb iran and the new commander of the israeli air force is saying yeah we can do it we could fly and come back and 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 uh, perform the mission and uh, deal with iran's nuclear facilities uh, clearly it's not going to happen tomorrow and clearly it's convenient to israel to say that you know it does something you know preparing to war and it's also convenient for the americans to use that as a means to distance themselves from Israel and tell the Iranians and the Europeans and Russians and Chinese, you see we're not, we're not on the same page with these crazy guys uh, in Israel. But you could see that the only way to attract high-level attention from Washington to Israel with the visit of the National Security Advisor Sullivan last week was by, by these drum bits over Iran. The Americans clearly are much less interested. In this administration is the first administration in decades that is not interested in promoting Israeli Arab peace in any, in any overt way that we know of. There's no peace team. There's no uh, special envoy. There's not even a formal pro forma call to resume these talks. Everybody's waiting for either for nothing to happen or just for the story to disappear from their Twitter feeds and, and, and TV screens, or to the day after Mahmoud Abbas leaves office on the Palestinian Authority. And by the way, he, he outlasted Netanyahu. Yeah. And outla- Trump, and Trump, and Trump, <laughs> and as he outlasted most Arab leaders, who, mm-hmm. who uh, with maybe with the exception of Bashar al-Assad, right, who, who were in office when when he took office, if it was years a reality ago, show,
0: yeah. he'd be the winner.
1: <laughs> yeah, so he's still the winner, but everybody's waiting to see what's going to happen after Abbas. So Iran is the major issue between Israel and the United States today, and both countries show distance from each other, and I think it's to to some advantage of both political leaderships in in both Washington and Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. to show that.
0: So Israel wrote out the uh, economic crisis of the pandemic has so far, you know, fairly successfully, a lot of it because of our booming high-tech industry. But there's also been a darker side to our success in terms of technology specifically, um, you know. uh, First
1: of all, it was the darker side that Tel Aviv won. The title of the most expensive city in the oh, world for the yeah. first time.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Kicking out London and and many American and, and many North American and uh, and Asian cities out of the list.
0: We're number one. We're number one. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um,
0: but I wanted to ask you about the uh, the NSO story and uh, and how troubling that is in terms of uh, Israel's you know international reputation and how. Uh, how much damage you think has been done over the continuing, it seems like, you know, month after month, different revelations of the use of this Israeli technology around the world for purposes that aren't too uh, pleasant?
1: You know, 30 years ago, I covered the defense industry and defense exports beat for a while. And I remember my first meeting with a senior defense minister official at the time. And he explained to me the Israeli arms export policy. In one sense, it says, we don't ask them about human rights. At that time, the issue was Israelis supplying arms to apartheid South Africa. And then it was to post Tiananmen China. And then it, before that, it was to Argentina during the junta and to Chile under Pinochet. And, and the, the very dark list that goes on and on and on. And NSO is only selling offensive cyber technology to authoritative regimes is just another link in a long chain of Israel using its more relaxed arms export controls in order to gain market share in areas where more established democracies watch their own defense industries much closer and much stricter. And so this is the backdrop at which we need to see the NSO story. The truth of the matter is that Israel also gained in the past and has gained through the NSO or selling supplying uh, offensive cyber technology to these authoritative regimes. It won. It scored diplomatic wins. Mm -hmm. Its peace deal with the United Arab Emirates was partly built on supplying this technology to the United Arab Emirates, to Saudi Arabia. And I think that Israeli leadership, the defense leadership in particular, is willing to take the heat and to appear outside or in liberal circles in the West as human rights abuser, which, by the way, Israel does by itself in the territories day in and day out, yeah. and in return, get the support and good ties with these with these authoritative regimes. This is not uh, just a matter of, of uh, public image. And once in a while, there's a scapegoat, a project that needs to be derailed, especially when America changes its own arms export policy. When America changed its policy towards mm-hmm. South Africa in the late 1980s, Israel had to curb It's deals there gradually as well, uh, at least the more sensitive technologies. And now we see a similar move by the Biden administration to curb the global sales of offensive cyber technology to authoritative regimes. And, uh, And part of it is targeting Israeli companies.
0: Okay. It's been a year, huh? So, as a journalist, one of the things I hate the most is when people ask me to predict the future because we all report on the past, not the future. But, you know, New Year's Eve, so you have to think about the year ahead as well as the year behind. So, I'm going to ask you guys what you foresee. Almost feel free to talk about how you see the Omicron crisis playing out, although we already have discussed that a bit. But most of all, I want to know what you think about whether or not a year from now we will see our government of change still holding together. Um, If we're going to see Naftali uh, Bennett still being prime minister on the eve of 2022 and how optimistic we will be that Yair Lapid will indeed in 2023 um, rotate into the job of prime minister. And, you know, the the corollary to that is what will become of Benjamin Netanyahu legally and politically.
2: Well, I think, you know, 2021 was a a post-Trump, post-Netanyahu world for the first time. I think it's too early to to hope for 2022 becoming the post-pandemic uh world. Maybe covid would become endemic finally during spring or summer and there will be less cases and at least half of our lives would begin to look normal again. I'm not sure yet I think that we can at least hope uh for this uh, considering the vaccines everything else that has been going on. Um, around me, what I can identify is that everybody is extremely tired of the pandemic and that it has hurt lives and, and you know, changed lives altogether and all for the worse. Um, so that, that's the number one thing I'm hoping for uh, next year, at least for there to be less cases and less deaths and, and more normalcy. Um, regarding politics, it, it, more than anything else, it depends on the challenges uh, we've mentioned. First and foremost, what happens with the pandemic? Will Bennett be able to avoid uh, lockdown and um, to maintain some uh, form of um, the Israeli economy working as usual, not just the high tech industry, but uh, most of the Israeli economy working through the winter months? This would be an enormous issue. And secondly, the the security challenges. We've mentioned Gaza. How does he face a possible um, military operation in Gaza while Mansour Abbas is part of his coalition? and um, as usual in israel you're always surprised by something that you didn't think about whether it's uh, the outcome of this secret war that israel has been involved in with the iranians all over uh, the middle east whether it has to do with uh, precise rockets being smuggled to hezbollah in lebanon will israel finally do something about that all of these events could change everything it could change the political uh, map completely and it could announce the, the comeback of benjamin netanyahu you remember Netanyahu. Uh, gradually returned to power after the huge failure of the center-left um, you know, government, uh, Olmert's government in 2006 in Lebanon. Uh, so I'm not sure we've uh, heard the last of uh, Netanyahu. But as long as Bennett remains in power as prime minister uh, in December 2022, then he can look at this as uh, a successful year, and this may be even mean uh, a relatively stable year for Israel. But that's quite a lot to, to expect. We'll, we'll have to see how this, uh, how, how things uh, turn by, by the end of next year.
0: Aluf, what's in your crystal ball? We'll wrap it up with your uh, predictions for 2022.
1: I'm mostly afraid of a security crisis because weak governments historically have tended to escalate the Israeli-Arab conflict and to use more force in uh, cross-border operations and... Not always, but sometimes these things escalated into major wars or semi-major wars. And, and I'm afraid that this might be the case because we have a weak prime minister with no political base. We have uh, two independent uh, defense minister who wants to, to show himself to be the strongman in government. And uh, this, this is usually a very bad combination for, uh, for stability. And, uh, and uh, th- this is what I'm mostly afraid of.
0: Well, on that cheerful note, <laughs> thank you so much, Aluf. Thank you, Amos, for coming in and sorting it all out with me. I hope you guys have a peaceful and healthy 2022.
1: Yeah, I hope to be wrong on my prediction.
0: <laughs> and now, as a New Year's bonus, here are three of Haaretz's reporters talking about their favorite stories of the year. We'll start with Ben Samuels. One of the things that happened here at Haaretz in 2021 that was an excellent development was Ben becoming our Washington correspondent.
2: I really enjoyed this series of profiles I did of members of Congress. I interviewed 12 Democratic lawmakers over the course of the year. And, you know, there's obviously been this ongoing discussion over the past several years about the so-called Democratic divide on Israel. And that really came to a head this year, both in May during the Gaza War, but also in September relating to emergency Iron Dome funding. And, you know, I thought it was really important to allow lawmakers on both sides of the spectrum, an opportunity to really explain their points of view and where they're coming from, but also to spotlight the lawmakers in the middle of the party who have their own nuanced takes on it, who don't necessarily fit this clean narrative of a party divided.
0: And now Ruth Schuster, who reports and edits our archaeology coverage.
3: One day, a thousand years ago, a chicken in ancient Yavne laid an egg. For some reason, the egg never did hatch, nor was it eaten, yet it wound up in a toilet. And there the egg would stay for a thousand years, whole and pristine, until archaeologists with the Israel Antiquities Authority found it, and in an extraordinary feat, they managed to extract it whole. But it would not stay that way. It was broken by accident in the lab. That was embarrassing. But looking for an upside to this sorry story, the archaeologists pointed out that the released fluids gave them a chance to analyze how chickens lived a thousand years ago. What they ate, for instance. Molecular analysis of the released fluids can give us insight into chicken feed a thousand years ago. Haaretz had to ask the most important questions. For instance, how they know how old the egg was. The answer, They know the egg held from the Islamic period because of other finds in the cistern. But the real question is how it smelled after a thousand years in a toilet. And the answer was, it smelled of nothing. Being protected by the anaerobic environment of an underground cesspit, it never rotted.
0: And finally, Linda Diane. I was kindly requested by the paper to try the McDonald's falafel, which went exactly as you would expect, and while I'd never written a dining review before, I am so thankful that my very first was something that was so bad in such a new and innovative way. A positive food review is nice, but a negative food review is passionate and creative and expressive. and. As much fun as it was to write, I was a little concerned because McDonald's is my comfort food and I was terrified that I would be denied service at my local branch for the rest of my life. But thankfully, nobody there read it or remembers what I look like or cares even a little bit. As for me... I reported on many, many stories this year, but what had the biggest impact on me was telling the ongoing tale of how difficult it has been for Israelis and their loved one abroad <laughs> and their loved ones abroad to be with each other in these pandemic times. My hope for the new year is for the pandemic to subside enough for these barriers to come down and allow us all to travel freely back and forth in and out of Israel. That wraps up the show and the year for us. Thank you, as usual, to Aaron Ehrlich, our producer. And until 2022, Shalom from Tel Aviv.